Hey, welcome to Hope City Church today. Uh, so excited that you're here with us. My name is Jason. I'm the pastor at the church and just excited to be uh, continuing today our series called The Goat. We are taking 12 weeks to read through and study the book of John. And we're reading the teachings and the stories and the miracles of Jesus to believe again and to be reminded again that he is the goat. He is the greatest of all time, the most polarizing, controversial, amazing, miraculous, unbelievable person to have ever lived. That's what we're doing over these weeks. And today, we are in John chapter 5. John chapter 5, hopefully you got a, um, a sermon guide when you walked in. But in John chapter 5 today, we are going to read a, a miraculous story about Jesus healing a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years which is unbelievable. But as amazing as that is, that Jesus healed a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years, that's not even the main point of John 5. The, the big idea or the, the main focus of John 5 is actually what happens after Jesus heals a man who has been paralyzed for 38 years. And what we're going to see today is we're going to see our first real conflict with Jesus. The first four chapters, Jesus shows up, he does miracles, people believe, people are impressed. Nobody's really against Jesus that we see in the first four chapters. But the honeymoon is over, and now from chapter 5 all the way to chapter 12 in John, we are going to see conflict because there is particularly a group of people who are opposed to Jesus and what Jesus is doing. And so there's a very clear line in the sand that is being drawn, and we're going to see this today. And the line in the sand is for, one side is for people who believe that Jesus is God. That he's not just some man, but that Jesus is God. And that's where Jesus and all of his followers are. And the other side of the line is for the people who don't believe that Jesus is God. And I want to just show you one example of this. It's the very last verse of the story that we're going to read today. We're going to read the whole story, but before we do that, I want to just read you this last verse so that you can see where we are headed today. It's verse 18 of John chapter 5, and this is what it says. It says, So the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him, talking about Jesus. For he not only broke the Sabbath, he called God his Father, thereby making himself equal with God. This is the deal breaker for the religious leaders, all right? They cannot get on board with this idea that Jesus is God. Where it gets tricky is that they believe in God. They have Old Testament Bibles. In order to be a religious leader, you had to be completely legit in your credentials. So they memorized the Old Testament uh, I mean, these guys believed in God. They were the cream of the crop. They were the top of the ladder in the religious institution. So these weren't terrorists. These weren't uh, atheists. These weren't people of another religion. They believed in God, but they didn't believe in Jesus. So Jesus shows up breaking commands and rules, in their opinion, in their interpretation, breaking rules and commands, and they confront him about it and say, you can't do this. God told us we can't do this. And Jesus says back to them, I am God. 
<laughs> so imagine that they're getting a little bit uh, upset about this. And so the fangs start coming out, and this is starting to get intense, and the conflict that, uh, that's happening. And so uh, we are going to read this story today and try to figure out the answer to this question. You ready? Here's the question. How do you end up like that? Like seriously, who ends up wanting to kill Jesus? Now, if, if you and I, I'm almost certain that you and I would say, man, if I was alive back then, if I, if I was, if I took, take me back there right now, like I will totally be on Team Jesus. I, I would never, I would never be on board with killing Jesus. And, and I don't blame you. I mean, I'm, I'm right there with you. How do you end up like that? That there were a group of people who believe in God, who had memorized the Old Testament, and who are wa- who's watching Jesus do miraculous things. And when they see all of that based on everything that they know, the conclusion they come to is, we need to kill that guy. How do you do that? How do you end up like that? Well, that's what we're going to try to find out today. So let's read this story together. John 5, starting with verse 1, all the way to 18. I'd love for you to read along with me on whatever uh, way you can read along. Here we go. Verse 1, afterward, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. Inside the city near the Sheep Gate was the pool of Bethesda with five covered porches. Crowds of sick people, blind, lame, and paralyzed, lay on the porches. So just imagine like an outdoor concert festival, except everybody there is lame, sick, and paralyzed. But they're all just kind of laying out in this massive yard area. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, would you like to get well? This is a great question. It's not the point of the sermon today, but it's a great question because Jesus asked the question that goes right to desire. Because sometimes, if we're being honest, our crisis kind of becomes our identity. And we don't necessarily want to get better because we enjoy the benefits of our crisis. And he said, do you want to get well? And the guy said, I can't, sir. For I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone always gets there ahead of me. He's just talking about this... um, it's kind of a myth, it's kind of a legend, it's kind of true thing that happened back then. It was very bizarre, but, but the water would stir, it would kind of, it would bubble up, it would stir, and, and the first sick person to get in the water would actually be healed, and so that was the plan. That's why there were all these sick people laying around there. They wanted to be the first one in the water, and he says, but I can't get in there because nobody will help me. Verse 8, Jesus told him, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. Instantly, the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath. Everybody say, but. There's always a but. If there was a soundtrack to this story, at this point right there in, in verse, the end of verse 9, the soundtrack would go, dun, 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 right? Because Jesus just healed a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years, but the miracle happened on Sabbath. Verse 10, so... The Jewish leaders objected. They said to the man who was cured, you can't work on the Sabbath. The law doesn't allow you to carry that sleeping mat. But he replied, the man who healed me told me, pick up your mat and walk. Verse 12, who said such a thing as that, they demanded. The man didn't know, for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd. But afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and told him, now you are well, so stop sinning, or something even worse may happen to you. Then the man went and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him. A couple more. Verse 16. So the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. But Jesus replied, my father is always working and so am I. In other words, Jesus says, Do you, are you really dumb enough to think that there's a day that God wouldn't heal on? 
No, come on, don't be crazy, bro. 18, so the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him. For he not only broke the Sabbath, he called God his father, thereby making himself equal with God. If after reading that story or hearing that story, your first thought is, what is wrong with these guys? You totally heard it right. You read the story right. Because here are guys who are, they, they are, they are talking to a man that has not walked in 38 years. He has been healed by Jesus, and he is walking down the street. But instead of throwing a party, instead of giving him a hug, instead of having, you know, throwing him a high five, instead of hiring a DJ and throwing a party, right? They see this man walking healed for the, for the first time in 38 years, and the only thing that they notice is that he's carrying a sleeping mat under his arm on the Sabbath. How do you end up like that? That's a valid question. Like, how do you end up being that person? How do you end up being the person who cannot throw a party for someone who has, who has experienced something life-changing because all you notice is something that potentially may be wrong? Now, we're reading this, and we're listening to this, and we're saying, what's the big deal? I mean, he's carrying a walking mat. But for these guys, this is enormous. I don't know how caught up you are on your you know, Jewish law. Let me just kind of backtrack for you a little bit. In Exodus 20, God gave them the laws. He gave them the Ten Commandments. He gave them some other rules and laws. And in Exodus 20, I want to read it to you. God told uh, the people, he said, remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord. So these guys, they know this verse. It's the screensaver on their phone. They have memorized this verse. They know this one. And they have actually taken it and they've added like 50 qualifiers to it so that you can't do any ordinary work on the Sabbath. This is something that they believed in wholeheartedly. I get that. But did anything that I just read to you or described to you, did that sound like ordinary work? Jesus just healed a paralyzed man who had not, who had not walked in 38 years. Does that sound ordinary to anybody? No. No, this is no ordinary thing. And Jesus is no ordinary man. But this is, this is the classic example of the problem with the religious leaders. They, they, they observe the letter of the law, but they miss the spirit of the law. They, they can't understand what God means because they're hung up on what he said. They're, they're in this like literal phase, and you know what this is like if you've ever raised like a 10 or 11-year-old. We're kind of going through this right now at our house. It's like, uh, yeah, give me a minute. Okay, one Two, three, four. Anybody raised a kid like that? Okay, I didn't actually mean 60 seconds. I just need you to leave me alone for a second. I'll be there in a few moments, minutes. Give me a second, one. Okay, that's not what I meant, right? Or you say, hey, go pick up a few things. You need to go pick up your room, pick up a few things in your room. Well, I picked up something in my room. That's not what I meant. You know what I meant. But for these guys, they cannot understand what God means because they are stuck on what he said. It's an interesting dilemma. By the way, it's why we have church. It's one of the reasons we have church. So that pastors, teachers, leaders, peers, growth group uh, peers can help us and together we can all work to understand what God meant in the Bible. 
We, we, we hold each other accountable. And for thousands of years, the church has come together to try to figure out what did God mean? We know what he said, but what did he mean? And if you try to figure that out by yourself in your living room, that's going to be bad for you, all right? So we need each other in the church to try to figure this out. But these guys, they, they, can't, they can't get past it. And what we're seeing in this exchange with Jesus is our first instance of legalism. And it was the, the biggest of the many problems with the religious leaders. Uh, they were legalistic. Now, what does that mean? Legalism, the simplest definition of legalism, and it's on your sermon guide, legalism is believing that God ex- accepts you or rejects you based on your behavior. Legalism is believing that God accepts you or rejects you based on your behavior. It's anything that adds to Jesus and grace. It's based on this idea that Jesus isn't enough, that to be saved requires Jesus plus something else. Where it gets tricky is that the something else just depends on who's in charge because they kind of set the rules, right? They kind of create, they create the list of requirements. So there are certain words you can say, but there are certain words you can't say. You, you can say darn, but don't say dang it, right? I mean, you, you can say crap, but don't say the other word, right? Maybe sometimes some rules say no, some rules say yes. You can wear skinny jeans, but don't wear yoga pants. Don't do that. You can't see rated R movies unless it's The Passion of the Christ. You can see that one. Certain restaurants you can go to, certain ones you can't, certain friends you can have, certain ones you can't. And depending on who's in charge, there is a list of rules that are added to what God said in order to make sure that we all make it to heaven. But here's the deal. Don't screw it up. Don't break the rules. And the reason that legalism is so dangerous is because it adds requirements that aren't in the Bible, but it's disguised as incredibly noble and helpful. It takes what the Bible says and adds to it just enough to make it seem smart. Well, the Bible says don't lust, so legalism says don't have a computer. The Bible says don't have sex with somebody you're not married to, so legalism says don't kiss until you're married. The Bible says don't be drunk, so legalism says don't go to Olive Garden. They serve alcohol, right? And you just kind of create these additions too. But this is not a new problem. This is not a 50-year-old problem or a 100-year-old problem. This goes back all the way to the beginning of humanity. And I want to show this to you. It's, uh, it's the story in Adam, of Eve. Adam and Eve. I'm sure you're familiar with the idea of Adam and Eve and the story of Adam and Eve. But God made Adam, put him in charge of everything, open world of possibilities. He gave him one no-no. Don't eat the fruit off of that tree over there. It's in Genesis 2, and it's in verse 16. I just want to read it to you. Uh, But the Lord God warned him, Adam, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of knowledge and good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. That's what God said. Now, you go one chapter over. Now, Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden. The snake shows up. You're probably familiar with this. The snake shows up. And begins talking to Eve, and the snake says to Eve, did God really say you couldn't eat that fruit? And look what she said, chapter 3, verse 3. Eve said, it's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. Did you see it? Did you catch it? Human beings haven't been alive for like a week. 
And we're already adding to what God said. Did you see it? God said, don't eat it. Eve said, God said, don't eat it and don't touch it. God didn't say that. He didn't say that. And ever since the first humans were created, because we are sinful, we are hardwired to try to figure out how to save ourselves. We don't want to need grace because that would admit that we need grace. Grace is an indictment on us that we actually need it. And so we convince ourselves that we can live a good enough life to be accepted by God. But here's the catch. If you're going to live a good enough life to be accepted by God, you are going to have to have one heck of a rule book. Lots of red tape and lots of qualifiers. Now, to be fair, let's just be fair about it. If you can't eat it, probably a good idea not to touch it, right? I don't think there's anything wrong with the advice that if God said don't eat it, it would be a good idea not to touch it. That's wonderful advice. But the difference between legalism and wisdom is legalism says touching it's the same thing as eating it. So God said don't touch it. God didn't say that. And watch what legalism does. The silliness of legalism is that you begin to add on to until you can't even figure out how you got to the list of requirements that you arrived at. Well, God said don't eat the fruit off that tree. So if you love God, you won't touch that tree. And then the next generation of legalists maybe would say, well, God said don't touch the tree, so that means we shouldn't use paper because if you love God, don't use paper. Everybody seen that makes sense to everybody. But then the next generation of legalists show up and say, well, God said don't use paper, so if you love God, you shouldn't use toilet paper, right? And then the next generation of legalists say, God said don't use toilet paper. If you love God, you'll wear a diaper. People who love God wear diapers. And then somebody wakes up one day and says, whoa, where is that in the Bible, like, like, wait a second, in this hypothetical, by the way, don't get nervous, you don't have to wear diapers, but in this hypothetical universe that I just created, somebody said, where did we get that? And somebody says, oh, well, the Bible clearly says it. God said that we should not eat fruit off of trees and touch trees and use paper and use toilet paper and wear diapers, see? Huh? And we just keep throwing up fences and boundary lines and fences and boundary lines and fences and boundary lines, and we say God said, but God didn't say God said, don't eat it. Don't eat it. But if you happen to cross that fence or that boundary line, you're going to hell. Jesus actually described it like this. He said to the religious leaders, he said, you place unnecessary burdens on people. That's what Jesus said. In other words, it's like you take, you take weights and you say to people, because the grace of God is what saves you. The gift of God, the grace of God. Jesus said, come to me and I take the weight off your shoulders and I give you my burden. It's yoke is easy, it's burden is light. He said to the religious leaders, then you take them, you get them in your system and you just weigh them down with extra burdens that I never intended to put on them. Now, what does any of this have to do with John 5? That's a fantastic question, Okay. We named the, the, the sermon this week, Sick People Need Jesus. Two weeks ago, we said that spiritual people need Jesus. Talk about Nicodemus. No matter how spiritual you are, you need Jesus. Last week, we titled it, The Miserable People Need Jesus. We talked about the woman at the well that 
you know, we keep searching and we keep trying and we keep ending up and we're wanting and we're unsatisfied and we're miserable. It's because we need Jesus. Jesus is the answer. Well, this week we said sick people need Jesus because Jesus healed a man who had been sick for 38 years, but we're not just talking about physical sickness. We're also talking about our souls being sick. People who have lost or have um, never had a moment when God takes out that old, stony, stubborn heart and replaces it with a, a tender and responsive heart is what the Bible says, and we've read that. The Bible says that when you, your soul is healthy and you have an active relationship with Jesus, that the, the identifiers of that in your life is love and joy and peace and kindness and gentleness and self-control and uh, long-suffering and all of these fruits of the Spirit that we have, that it's not like you just kind of force yourself to have these things. It is the evidence that your soul is healthy and that you have an active heart that is connected to God. But when your soul is sick, the heart becomes hard and stony and, and stubborn. The cancer of religion and legalism gets into our bloodstream. And the only thing that can heal us is the power of Jesus Christ. If you know someone who is battling this disease of legalism, hear my heart with all the love in the world. Run as fast as you can. You can't change them. You can't argue them to health. You can't debate with them to health. See, one of the dangers of legalism and religion is that is it incredibly contagious. It's incredibly contagious. And I wish that I could tell you of a lot of examples of people that I've known. I've grown up in church. I wish I could tell you a lot of examples of people that I've known who have become hard-hearted and legalistic and religious, but they experienced a shower of grace and love and God's grace, and their heart was replaced, and they, they, they were converted, and they went from being this incredibly religious, legalistic person to this incredibly grace-filled, loving person. But I've been around Christians for 35 years, and I don't know one. I called my dad this week, really wrestling with this sermon, and I said, Dad, you've been following Jesus 50 plus years. Can you think of anyone that you know who believed in God and is convinced that they are a Christian, but are overcome with religion and legalism? but at some point in their life had a conversion, was showered with grace, and became a grace-filled, tender, responsive, loving follower of Jesus. He couldn't think of one. Couldn't think of one. I called some other friends, desperately trying to come up with one example of someone who had the disease of legalism and ever found a cure couldn't find one. And if you know one, I don't say this uh, uh, sarcastically, please 
Tell me the story. Come find me and tell me the story so that I can celebrate that someone is not too far gone. It's not that God cannot heal them. It's that they do not believe that they would need to be healed. The number one characteristic of legalism is pride. God's proud of me and disappointed in you. God loves me and doesn't love you. And if I believe that God is most proud of the characteristic that is the source of the pride in my life, why would I ever believe that I need to change? And I hope, 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 hope that neither of these scenarios are true, but if you made me choose today between my children spending their life battling an addiction to drugs and substances or spending their life battling an addiction to religion and legalism, I choose option one. And I don't say that to belittle anyone in this room who's, who has walked through addiction with family members. But the reason I say that is because maybe, just maybe, in the depths of their despair of their addiction, they could look in the mirror and say, what am I doing? I need Jesus and I need the grace of God. But a legalistic person never looks in the mirror and says, what am I doing? I need the grace of Jesus and I need God. You need God. They're good. They're good. So if legalism is dangerous, and it is, and if it's almost impossible to come back from, and it is, we have to be on guard from legalism creep. No one ever goes to an I want to be legalistic conference. I guarantee you no one in this room says, you know what I really want? I just want to end up being that grouchy older person who just tells everybody what's wrong with them. No. No one in the room says, you know what, I want to be the person responsible for pushing all of my children and grandchildren away from church and Jesus because I claim to be a Christian, but I'm the meanest person they've ever met. No one ever says that. But something happens and it gets into our bloodstream and little by little the sickness begins to take over and we wake up one day and we begin to feel as if, and I'm air quoting here, we are more saved than other people. We're, we're more saved. Or, or we begin to think that everything that we gave up to follow Jesus, they have to give up to follow Jesus. Well, I stopped drinking. Well, I stopped smoking. Well, I started tithing. Well, I endured my marriage. I didn't, I didn't leave my marriage. And if they aren't willing to do what I did, then they must not love God the way that I love God. And then we wake up and we can't think of the last time that we celebrated a miracle. Because all we can see are people carrying walking mats on the Sabbath. So for the time that we have left, I want to give you three warning signs that religion and legalism is potentially moving into your soul. Potentially. I, uh, my mom, yesterday was my, my, the anniversary, eight-year anniversary of my mom dying from colon cancer. And I remember when she passed away, the doctors told me, they said, Jason, you need to get screened uh, and tested early because colon cancer, this is what the doctor said, 
that colon cancer is the easiest form to treat if you catch it early. If you catch it too late, it's the most deadly. So if we catch it early on, you're going to be fine. But if it's too late, it's almost impossible to cure because it spreads through your abdomen. And I really believe that legalism and religion is the same way, that if somehow we could catch it early, the Holy Spirit of God can cure our hearts. But if we wait too late, we wake up one day, and the hard heart cannot be resuscitated. Cannot be resuscitated. So I love that Hope City Church is a place where we're probably not struggling with a ton of legalism, but the jury's still out. Everybody's getting saved. We got people getting saved left and right. We got kids running around here left and right. But no, but like no one ever plans on being the church that none of our kids want to go to. You wake up one day and nobody's getting saved anymore. You wake up one day and there's no young people running around. You wake up one day and your kids don't want to come to church with you anymore. How does that happen? How do you stop celebrating miracles? And how do you end up wanting to kill Jesus? Let me give you three warning signs. Number one, write these down. Number one, I object more than I celebrate. I object more than I celebrate. Verse five, they see the guy. He was healed. It says, but the religious leaders objected because it happened on the Sabbath. It's interesting the different emotions we feel when somebody that we know has something good happen to them. You think it would just be like all positive, <laughs> but it's not. This sinful heart inside of us creates these emotions of jealousy, anger, hate, whatever it is. And the same thing's true when God begins to do amazing thing in pe- things in people's lives. A family member decides to come to church or get saved, someone gets healed, and if we're not careful, instead of celebrating, like, like the Bible says heaven does, somebody gets saved, heaven hires a DJ, Right? And, and, and instead of us celebrating, we say, well, yeah, I've seen this before. They do this. Just don't worry about it. We say, well, let's just see if this sticks. I know what they're really like. Y'all don't, really, y'all, y'all don't know the whole story yet. Let, I, I, let's just don't be premature about it. Let's just see how long this lasts. I don't think they really meant it. And we never admit it to ourselves, but we have, we have these feelings. And we believe that we have legitimate reasons not to celebrate. So let me ask you this question. When is the last time you really celebrated God doing something in someone's life without putting qualifiers on it or questioning people's motives? The first reaction you had to God doing something amazing was, yes, not, eh, we'll see. May not have been God, right? Three warning signs, I may be becoming legalistic. Number one, I object more than I celebrate. Let me give you number two. Number two, I believe you can't more than you can. Again, in verse 10, they said to the man, you can't work on the Sabbath. This is another sneaky creep that happens in our life. Without realizing it, we start saying things like, you can't pray about that. Or people can't really change. If we happen to be in a position to walk with somebody who just gave their life to Christ, isn't it crazy how we don't say, oh my goodness, you just committed your life to Christ? Let me tell you about the world of possibilities that are in front of you now that Jesus is in control of your life. 
No, we say, oh my goodness, you just committed your life to Jesus Christ? Make sure you don't A, B, C, D, E. Isn't that true? You can't. You can't. It's more subtle than that when like you're by yourself and you're scrolling through social media and you see someone's post and you think, you can't wear that. Or you think, well, you can't say that. And you think, well, man, they must really be struggling in their walk, you know, or something like that. You can come up with a way to be real spiritual about it. And you really genuinely begin to question their salvation. Now listen, I'm not talking about walking with somebody. There, I would say a couple of times a month I take out my phone and text one of my friends or call my friends and say, hey, take that down. What are you doing? That was stupid. But these are people I'm walking with. I'm talking about sniper fire. You know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about being miles away from someone relationally. They're making judgment calls about their relationship with Jesus. Don't be a sniper. Believing that you can't. Instead of thinking about all the things that you can do. God told Adam and Eve, everything is yours. You just can't touch that one thing over there. The devil shows up, and what's the one thing he brings up? Did God really say you can't have that? You can. You can. You can. Let me give you one more. Trying to make sure I'm not becoming legalistic. Number three, I feel more anger than compassion. I feel more anger than compassion. Verse 18, we read it. So the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him. Who wants to kill Jesus? There are people who have memorized the Bible, watch him do miracles, and want to kill him. This is probably the most challenging to admit to yourself, but it's the easiest for other people to see in you. When you first met Jesus, your heart was filled with love and compassion, eager to help and serve, man, I'm in. But over time, legalism creep comes in, and now sinners make you angry instead of brokenhearted. You don't really want to help people because after all, people can't really be trusted. People are allowed to get you, take advantage of you, lie to you. Hey, by the way, the government is out to silence you. Everything you watch and everything you read and every link you click on and every time you get together with your friends for dinner, you get riled up. Riled up. You don't even recognize anymore that your default emotion is anger. Jesus never got mad at sinners for sinning. Go read it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, read every story. He never got mad at sinners for sinning. The only people Jesus ever got mad at were the people who got mad at sinners for sinning. There was actually a story one time when Jesus looked out over this large crowd of people and the Bible says that he wept because they were like sheep without a shepherd. In other words, he looked out at crowds of people who needed to believe in Jesus. And he was not angry, he was broken. When's the last time you read a news report or watched the news or talked to a friend and instead of anger you felt brokenhearted? Here's a question for you. When's the last time you cried compared to the last time you yelled? I'm specifically talking about religion. The last time you cried instead of the last time you yelled. 
the last time your response to something that felt threatening to you about your belief in Jesus was to fall to your knees and to weep and cry out to God instead of yell, post, text, whatever. The Bible says that Jesus did not come to condemn the world. The Bible says that God so loved the world. He didn't regret making the world. He wasn't angry at the world. He loved the world so much that he gave the best that he had and he sent his son, Jesus. If your brand of religion and your uh, following Jesus makes you angry at the world, it's not Jesus. It's not Jesus. It is legalism and religion that is spreading through your bloodstream. The reality is I'm a sinner. The reality is I need grace. The reality is I'm hopeless and dangerous without depending on Jesus every day of my life. The reality is I'm one day without Jesus away from a tailspin. Nobody needs more grace than me. And if anything that I've described to you today sounds remotely close to anything that you are feeling, please run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. And ask him to fill your heart with grace and mercy again. God, I feel my heart becoming hardened. God, I feel myself judging others more than uh, supporting them or praying for them. God, I feel myself believing I'm more saved than other people. God, I feel myself always summing up everybody's r- religion based on all the ways and things that I'm, I'm watching them do. God, I can't remember the last time that I just thanked you for saving me. I once was lost, but I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. He saved a wretch like me. Is this making sense to anybody out there? Jesus is enough. And he doesn't need us to police the world. He wants us to love the world. So here's my commitment to you. I want to be the type of pastor. And I want to create the type of church. And I want to be the type of dad that creates the type of home. And I want to be the type of friend that creates the type of environment that we celebrate. We hire a DJ. Instead of being the type of person who's trying to find people who carry walking mats on the Sabbath. And I would love it if today maybe the Holy Spirit would grab your heart and you would feel the same way. God, help us to be people who love and celebrate more than we object and yell, and get angry. We want to be soft and tender and responsive to you. That's our prayer. Let's pray.